0: been said before, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again, and there is nothing new under the sun. But it sure seems like this is new, right? Electric cars, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, it all feels like uncharted territory, but we're here to prove otherwise with the help of subject matter experts, tech enthusiasts and a few of the friends we've made along the way. And no matter what the idea of the day is, remember, it's been said before, we're just going to say it again. Say It Again is proud to support the Automotive Aftermarket Charitable Foundation. Founded in 1959, the AACF provides help and support to automotive aftermarket families who, due to catastrophic illness, accident, or natural disaster, have exhausted their resources. Visit aftermarketcharity.org to learn more. Welcome to another episode of Say It Again, where we explore the lessons of history and apply them to today's trends in business and technology. Say It Again is powered by Brain Trust, a team of dedicated industry and subject matter experts who are here to guide you through the promises and pitfalls of the world of data so that you can unlock the potential that's living inside the business you already have. When it was first developed by French anthropologist Alphonse Bertillon in 1879, the Bertillon system relied on precise physical measurements and descriptive information to identify individuals, and it quickly gained popularity in law enforcement circles as a scientific method of identification. The basic premise of the system was that no two individuals had identical physical characteristics, and by recording precise measurements of specific attributes, the length and width of the head, the length of the forearm, the length and width of the foot, Along with descriptive information about the individual, such as their name, age, and distinguishing features like scars or tattoos, you could positively identify a person for who they were. But it didn't stop there. Bertillon was a scientist. I mean, you know, as much as any anthropologist is a scientist, and he continued to develop his system as technology improved. When it became possible, he added systemic facial photography, which he called portraiture by measurement. But which you and I call mugshots, that helped to identify individuals based on their facial features as well. Bertillon's system was a hugely successful process in its day, and one of its early successes came in 1883 when it was used to identify a notorious French criminal named Arsène Lupin. Lupin had managed to evade police for years, but when he was finally caught, Bertillon's system was used to definitively identify him. The success of the Bertillon system in identifying Lupin helped to establish its credibility and made it popular among law enforcement agencies around the world. Despite its success, however, the Bertillon system was not without its critics. One of the most common early criticisms was that it was too time-consuming and labor-intensive to be practical for widespread use. What's more, taking accurate measurements required a skilled technician, and the process of measuring an individual could take several hours, Those criticisms too ignored the most obvious problem with using body measurements as proof of identity. Namely, that bodies change. Bertillon relied heavily on characteristics that did not take into account changes in weight, hair color, or facial hair. Without solving for these variables, it could be difficult to accurately identify someone using only physical measurements. But despite these criticisms, the Bertillon system remained in widespread use throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, racking up a number of famous successes. Even so, it was far from foolproof, a fact that became apparent on the morning of May 1st, 1903. By all accounts, the morning of May 1st started out just like any other for Robert McClury, the warden at Leavenworth Prison. After exchanging pleasantries with his colleagues and making his way to his desk, McClury started on the business of the day processing prisoners for admission, and even that was routine enough until he got to the name Will West. West had just been arrested and, in due course, subjected to the Bertillon identification system we just talked about. Once West's measurements were taken, the Leavenworth clerk went back to their cabinet and pulled out a file with the name William West on it. William West had been convicted of murder in 1901, and his measurements matched precisely those of the man named Will West waiting in processing. What's more, the William West in the photos clipped to the file looked an awful lot like the Will West they had in custody. And they didn't look alike in like a racist turn of the century sort of they all look alike kind of way either. These guys look a lot alike. The men had a similar hairline similar jawline, even the same slight uptick to the left side of the mouth. There was no reason, in other words, to believe that the police hadn't just arrested the convicted killer, William West, and brought him to justice to serve out the rest of his sentence at Leavenworth Penitentiary. There was just one problem. The records showed that William West was already in custody at Leavenworth. He must have escaped, McClury probably thought to himself. Plenty of prisoners had tried to escape since McClury became Leavenworth's warden in 1899, and it looked like this one had managed to pull it off. You almost got away, he might have said to West, file in hand. Not to worry, though, inmate. We've surely kept your cell warm for you. West was shocked at seeing the pictures clipped to the file and reportedly told the warden, that's my picture, but I don't know where you got it, for I know I have never been here before. Now, it's not unusual for prisoners to deny their guilt, especially at Leavenworth, but McClory decided to play along, sending a correctional officer to go check on Mr. West's cell. We'll see what he says when he comes back empty-handed, the warden probably thought to himself. And no one was more surprised than McClory when the officer showed up to his desk with none other than William West, the convicted murderer, the Leavenworth inmate, and every inch a virtual twin of the other Will West. The case of the two Will Wests caused a sensation in its day, and the lore that sprung up around the case through the validity of the Bertillon system, as well as hundreds, if not thousands of convictions into question, and ultimately helped to establish fingerprints as a more effective means of verifying an individual's identity. But the case of the two Will Wests did something else, too. It showed that no matter how sure you think you are, you might have the wrong man. I'm Joe Boris, an auto industry analyst and environmental science writer who likes to put modern problems into historical context. But before that, I was a 15-year veteran of the car business who put in a few 10,000-hour stints across several dealership jobs, from the parts counter to the service drive and eventually behind the sales desk. And the case of the two Will Wests, while totally unrelated to the business of selling cars, really feels like it has something to do with the business of selling cars. You know what I'm saying? So to help take me down that particular rabbit hole, I've enlisted the help of my good friend, Tim Hayden. Tim is the CEO of data consulting firm Brain Trust, one of the producers of the Say It Again podcast, and something of an information age Gulliver, exploring the wide open seas of new technologies and ideas. What do you think, Tim? Is that a better intro than you got last time?
1: Right. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And I don't, uh, if I'm Gulliver, does that make you Lilliputian? I don't know. I will but kill you, you did.
0: If you eat that egg upside down.
1: <laughs> well, that aside, were you just comparing customers and prisoners? Were you contrasting the two?
0: I was indeed. And I think that that's a fair statement because number one, we always want to talk about captive consumers, but ultimately it's about producing a better experience. You know, like it's important that we're offering the right services to the right people. And a prison only really has one service, which is detainment. So you want to make sure you're detaining the right person.
1: Right. Well, and the same thing too, with known customers, loyalty programs, rewards programs. I mean, all the things that we do to get repetitive behavior from customers. It's what we all want in business. We want someone who bought a car from us four years ago. They come in and they buy another one from us. And the same thing with hamburgers and t-shirts. Our doctors feel the same way. I mean, everybody wants that. And we won't dive into customer lifetime value, but that's what sets it up, doesn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. But look at it from the point of view of the customer. When you're interacting with a company that doesn't know who you are, it is the most frustrating thing i have hilton honors points it is i have hilton honors points that are on my personal email and then i had a hilton honors point on my work email try as i might i have not yet found anybody at hilton who can help me merge these two accounts so if i lose that work email i go to a different job or a different profession as happens that email is gone I'm giving up 50,000, 60,000 points. When I go to book totally. a vacation for my family, I can't use those points. It's a nightmare.
1: That's right. It is. And you're you're hitting a, a really soft note there for me because you know years ago, when I was at Edelman, I wrote the Global Mobile Playbook for Hilton. And it was all about how the mobile app could be used to check in your room. And eventually, as something you could order service through, obviously book reservations, but even sure. the money thing was to bypass the front desk and go use it as a key to open your door. That all came down to data. And I still today, I too am an honors member and I've used a series of email addresses. And guess what? I can still find out that two or three of them work to log in. I've had to just train myself to only use one to be able to get those points. It's a challenge, right? It's a, the mobile story I share is not so much about what I did, but the proliferation of digital channels has created this conundrum. We change email addresses. We change phones. We change our Wi-Fi routers in our houses. We get a new car and we pair our phone with it after we paired our phone with another car for three years before that. All of these give us different addresses. They give us different identifiers with the brands we buy from and the brands that that wanna learn about us, right? I'm not gonna use the word tracking, but those that wanna use data for good to give us better experiences, they're the ones that have got this challenge with an entity that's non-resolved, like a, like a spider sees you and sees eight of you. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. is it eight of you or is it a hundred of you? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what a lot of brands have that challenge today.
0: Oh, yeah. And you know you deal with it all the time. And from the point of view of a business, and you know I'm always going to go back to the car business because that's where my heart is, but uh, from the point of view of any business, You really need to resolve the identities of the people that you have, whether you have duplicates and you're spending advertising dollars multiple times, whether it's a question of regulatory compliance and you wanna make sure that all of your data is locked down and sealed, just in terms of predictive marketing, right? All of these different algorithms go out to try to predict consumer behavior. If you have split the consumer into a Tim Hayden and a Timothy Hayden, and you can't figure out that that's the same guy, You don't have an accurate predictive model and you're sending the catalog to two different people. We're going way back now, but I can't tell you how many Sears catalogs we would get at the house because I, my first job in college was at Sears. So I got a Sears catalog. My mom would get a Sears catalog, you know, and she had remarried. So her last name was different. So now we've got three catalogs in the house and those were not cheap. You know, those are not cheap to produce. They weren't cheap to ship. And did we buy any more than we would have bought if we only had one? No, not at all. That's right. It it becomes critically important. And then from the regulatory act, especially for car dealers, but any entity that offers financing, whether you're selling bicycles, whether you're selling garages, home improvement stuff, anything where there's credit involved and how many times do you go up to the checkout at Target or Walmart. They ask you if you want to sign up for a credit card. So now they are financial entities. They are subject to the new FTC safeguards rule, and those really have teeth. And I think this is where, I know you don't like the word expert, but you you really are an expert in this. Can you tell us about some of the teeth that these programs and laws have that some of these companies are opening themselves up to by not having their data under control?
1: You bet. I mean, an expert, I'm not the professional student. Uh, data okay. governance and, yes. and what what's changing and what's reshaping and morphing the privacy scene yes absolutely that's the jam right now you know most of these laws that are data privacy laws including the FTC safeguard rule well let's be clear that was not legislation that was rulemaking that was a committee with some political influence that made the rule and for those that are really keeping tabs on this it's forty six thousand dollars around that neighborhood they're Different people are coming up with different calculations, but it's it's at least $46,000 per day per instance when you violate that rule. $46,000 per day per instance, if they're doing it with one customer, they're probably doing it with many customers. And that adds up really quick, it just does. So what, what we're going with this is quit running from compliance, quit running from compliance as something that is regulation in a bad way. It's actually a prescription. For you to clean up your data to become much more efficient, to reduce your marketing expenses, to your point about sending too many catalogs to the same house, or too many emails to the same person. I mean, these are all things that can be fixed through universal entity resolution and identity resolution, which just means simply, I think what you've been teeing up there and if we look back to Will West you've got a William West a Bill West a Will West right. a W West
0: Bill West um, the 3rd
1: and at the end of the day it's just it's just Will right just Will that's what's happening in companies today too many email addresses a mastercard versus an amex one location here and one location there the breadcrumbs that we are emitting as we go through this world of commerce and business and digital connectivity have created this situation. And this is where the the punchline is, customer data platforms, right? This is where artificial intelligence and machine learning are here to the rescue. Am I right?
0: I mean, I think so, because if you look at some of these connected apps, these connected entities, right? Like if you have your Hilton Honors on a phone and you've also got your VW or your Volvo or your Chevrolet app on the phone, you've got your Chargeway on the phone, they're all tracking you Right. And I, it, I just feel like there is a web 3.0. There is some kind of futuristic blockchain solution where you essentially exist as an NFT and this NFT is kind of your proof of humanity, right? And you're using it right. across multiple apps. And within the context of a customer data platform, it's kind of the same thing where you create this identity that is resolved as you know whatever identifier it has. And then the AI goes out and makes these different connections and says, no, 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 this is the same guy. This guy over here, this is the same guy. This person that is in here under this different name. It just kind of seems like there's ways that the AI can go in and use that location data on the phone, use that multi-platform, multi-email thing to figure out who you are. And that's not only going to drive down marketing costs, but it's going to drive down the operating costs of a business. And it's going to enable them to be able to sell you products and at a lower price.
1: I'll um, let me, let me start there at the gas pump is just to say that I love what shell rewards does. They take my payment method and my phone number and every shell station I go to, I don't have to wait, but a nanosecond to type in my phone number or just plug my credit card or debit card into the pump. And it immediately shows me how I get a nickel off gas, sometimes 10 or 15 cents off. There's more depth than that. I don't want to digress on show rewards, but we're we're going back (laughs) on this, really.
0: No, but um, it it it, all comes back to it. it. They take care of you. They have figured out how to identify you. And give That's you right. the service that you need. And they know that they don't have to market to you anymore because you're already in there. So that customer acquisition cost, those marketing costs, the savings that they get on that, they pass that on to you. You become That's right. a more loyal customer by having a better experience because they know you.
1: That's right. I'll take two other things you said, and that is what what we're seeing in these data privacy laws. I said it earlier, they're a prescription. What does the prescription say? It says that the consumer has the right to see their data, to uh, correct any anything that's incorrect, any inaccuracies in the data that you have on them. It says that they have the opportunity to ask you to pause. Don't spend any money, don't send me any email, don't send me an email, and quit putting display ads in front of me. They, they have the right to do that. And then the last two things, to be able to give you permission or to take it away from you to sell their data. And the last thing is basically, the freedom to be forgotten, to the ability to go to a company and say, I want you to delete everything you know about me. And it's kind of like cell phone portability. If you want to leave Verizon, you want to go to AT&T, but you want to take your phone number with you, the same kind of thing is going to be there in terms of where they can say, hey, download all your data. And you know, if a company's set up to do it, the competitor, you could call them up and say, hey, look, I have all this data. Would you like to give it to me and give me $200 worth of credit in your store? Would you like me to do something else? That part's not figured out yet, but it's what you already said. It is probably most likely going to be enabled by that immutable ledger blockchain. It is probably going to be something that is a tokenized identity and a tokenized identity record that goes with you in a number of places. And that my friend, I think is where things get really exciting because this is where companies will probably pay some price of admission to know who we are to know what they want to know about us the the key thing that i just want to lay out there in terms of having that golden customer record for every brand right now there are customer data platforms there is data science there are even a few crms that do this heavy lifting for you they've got the algorithmic capabilities to identify and classify data throughout your systems in order to assemble those records and to put you in a better situation to be able to use those records in terms of segmentation, customer journey analytics, and of course, compliance. But really understanding what makes your business tick is actually the thing that will make you have happier customers. And what do happy customers do? Buy from you again.
0: Exactly right. You know, and it's so funny. You and I always talk about stuff like this, you know, in our conversations because this is kind of the intersection of our interests. And as humans, this is how you and I connected first two years ago, and obviously now into this working relationship that we have. And I always leave these conversations feeling like we've gone the other way. What do I mean by that? If you look back 200 years or 150 years, you knew the baker down the street. You knew the butcher down the block. You knew the grocer who gave you produce and they knew you, they knew you coming in and they would say, Hey, I've got that steak that you like. Hey, I know you loved that fish last week. It's coming in. They're going to be here tomorrow and I'll put it on your tab. And that went away with this like push in the late 20th century to make everybody a number and make everything a commodity and commoditize humans and move widgets out the door and that kind of conversation. And we've gone the other way now where technology is going to enable that small town experience, that person to person relationship, that humanity to kind of come back in the future and that's going to be ultimately how we stop being the uh the wrong will west where you pull into the hilton and they kick you out because you know maybe the last joe boris trashed the room and burned everything to the <laughs> ground and that was probably not me that was a different guy
1: <laughs> yeah well the real joe boris stand yeah well and you know,
0: finally I- the last thing not to put too fine a point on it but if you're listening to this and you're a marketer or you are a regulator or you are tasked within a company to deal with these things somebody could reach out to Mr. Tim Hayden on LinkedIn and this is what you do
1: we're we're on a mission from God you know we're <laughs> uh, we're on a uh... No, we're on a. You know, that's that is that is our vision: building brains for brands and trust with audiences. Because the thing you were just talking about, right? Something that was the reality in the fifties, the probably the forties, fifties, and sixties before that, and a little bit after that, right? I can remember riding in the shopping cart at a Piggly Wiggly with my mom, oh, and I yes. can remember. I have vivid recollections of the store, the smell. And the conversations, just little bits I can hear in my head, little bits of conversation that maybe my mom had with the butcher or with the, with the cashier on the way out. And it was always hyper meaningful. Now, we were past the point where I think you were talking about walking into the butcher. They knew your favorite cuts of meat. They knew where your kids went to school. They, they knew where you went to church. Uh, they knew what you were doing programmatically at church. Were you in the men's group? Were, you in the, were your kids in the, in the children's and the youth programs, Right. They knew about all those things. And that's where this privacy thing is really all about, is giving the consumer control, whether it's not full control or if it's most control of the data that's collected on them. Brands have an opportunity to do that. And as they do it, they're going to build trust. But the more beautiful business side of this is that it's going to help them build efficiencies in the organization, personalizing customer experiences. You know, it's, there's a lot of work to do there. There's, there's much more beyond a customer data platform that has to happen for this symphony of things to go to work. But it all starts there as a basis point of having that single source of intelligence for the organization. It's not limited to marketing data. It is inventory data, it's customer experience and customer service data. It is all those things. You know, we, we it's only our second show. And But I know we're going to hear more of you taking it in this direction of Web3, NFTs and things like that, because to get there, we have to do all these things with Web2 data first.
0: 100%. Tim, I know we're coming to the end of your time contract here. I know you're a busy, busy guy. You're not even uh, in your normal spot today. You're actually in Dallas. You're heading over to, uh, I can't say who and where, but I know it's the 55th floor of some big building and you're going to have a great view. For people who are listening to this, who are excited about what we're talking about, who want to pick your brain more, how do they get in touch with you?
1: Well, you can always go to our website, which is Partners. There is no .com there. It is braintrust.partners. and and Joe, you're actually at the helm of a lot of that in terms of this podcast, other shows, and so much of our written content that we'll have there as well. And LinkedIn seems to be the other place where we're not only sharing our own content, but we're also commenting and providing commentary on third-party content and other people's content. We're trying to get out there, as you know, at Braintrust. We believe it takes a village. We believe integration is a iterative always forward moving train that you've got to always look at what else can you be connected to and what else and who else can you learn from so no doubt about it as we as we do more of these shows i want them to leave comments and uh challenge us right ask us questions um we want to make this as interactive as possible
0: and for those of you who missed the gulliver's travels reference earlier remember when you're eating an egg the wide side is at the bottom thanks for listening. (laughs) Subscribe to Say It Again on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how you can put your data to work and multiply the results of your top performers, visit Braintrust.partners.